This is an ABC podcast. This is the WA Country Hour with Belinda Varischetti on ABC Radio WA. And a very good afternoon to you. Indonesia has finally issued some import permits for live cattle. So as you can imagine, Australia's cattle industry, pretty happy with that news coming through over the weekend. And also a little later this hour, the heads of the two key farm lobby groups here in Western Australia have said thanks but no thanks to a face-to-face meeting with the Federal Agriculture Minister, Murray Watt, who's in Perth today for Federal Cabinet. We'll find out why after the news headlines and a look at the weather around Western Australia just after half past 12 today. It is six past 12 here on the Country Hour on the ABC WA, streaming live on the web and on the ABC Listen app. Well, if you thought it was hot at your place over the weekend, imagine being in Carnarvon. And maybe you are. And if you are, you would be well aware that yesterday's top temperature was 49.9 degrees, a new record for the Gascoigne town that's about 900 kilometres north of Perth. But fruit farmer Wes Bassett says his thermometer was saying it was even hotter than that. And he thinks the ongoing heat wave could wipe out up to half of his avocados. A bit of continued heat duration, which is sort of now pushing some of the smaller avocado trees past their limit. The bark gets burnt and the the fruit comes off in the next couple of days after a heat event like this. So, yeah, it's not good for the smaller trees, certainly um, the, the worst we've seen since we've been here in 15 years. You don't remember a period like this before? Uh, we have had the odd 47 here and there couple of days of 44 together uh, over the years, but perhaps not as long a duration because we've had the October spell last year and then just before Christmas and then uh, a couple of times this year. And then we've hit this nearly 50. Uh, yeah, certainly hottest that I've ever recorded here. The official reading yesterday was 49.9 degrees in Carnarvon. Do you have your own sort of local gauge and how hot did it get? Yeah, we had uh, 48 under the veranda and uh, around uh, 53 outside. So, yeah, certainly um, very hot. And the farms, which are further inland, they will be a lot hotter, up to five, seven, eight degrees hotter the further in you go. How do you sort of mitigate the effects of this heat? Are there any changes you need to make? Uh, you have to sort of take control of your watering and go around all of your different watering zones and and just keep the water up to them every uh perhaps give them 20 minutes 20 minutes 20 minutes and keep circling it around and hopefully you keep the roots cool enough even if you lose branches and and leaves you can still keep your tree you know and it'll grow again given it's hot across the whole region and the town you know as you say clearly you wouldn't be the only one experiencing these challenges no correct um further up the road some of the the farms that sit maybe 15 kilometres away from the coastline, uh, they really, really suffer. Bananas go down and uh, everything gets burnt. So, yeah, some people will lose quite a lot. What is the plan today? Oh, well, I'll just try and tidy up a bit and uh, lift some of the underneath foliage just to get a bit of air through the trees 
don't want to take off too much of the foliage above because um, we need that to protect the the uh, avocados from getting burnt. But yeah, just tidy up the farm after mango season. I think a lot of people are in the same position. You then start pruning where you can, depending on the the temperature. How was mango season for you? Was it affected by the heat, or did you sort of get through? We did have quite a lot of burn uh, in October. Quite a lot of fruit drop then. Then a bit more burn just before Christmas. Probably a lot of people got caught out. Difficult to get the mangoes off quick enough this year. Having said that, there was still a reasonable quantity of fruit. Perhaps it depends on the size of your trees and if the fruit's protected inside the foliage. So, yeah, uh, all round, it, it was just difficult to deal with a lot of burnt fruit, but still getting through that, we managed to put enough on the market. So it was not too bad, really. And how do you see with the avocados, do you think you'll be able to sort of get through that as well, despite the heat? I think the avocados, they won't be as tough and they've got to take a longer heat spell through the full summer. So, yeah, we'll probably lose maybe 40% of the avocados, I would think, 40, maybe 50%. I've noticed each year growing avocados here is getting tougher and tougher. We had only one good year last year in about probably eight years for avocados. So, yeah, it's definitely tougher. They're more uh, affected by heat or cold or wind than um, other trees. Just tricky to grow some fruits up here. That's People people have things that are not always as easy to do, but if you can get them to work, then it's an advantage. We're just going to have to look at the long term and see how often these kind of heat spells keep happening and, and, and how much effect they're going to have and what we can maybe do to run with the things and mitigate things, perhaps different watering schemes. I'm not sure, but yeah, certainly we're going to have to keep an eye on it. Wes Bassett speaking to Tom Robinson about the battles of trying to grow things like avocados, mangoes and bananas in Carnarvon where the temperature regularly gets above 40 degrees. 11 past 12. Carnarvon Shire President Eddie Smith says other producers in the area will suffer losses caused by such extreme heat. The old bananas will struggle a fair bit. Um, I think all the ground crop guys, I know there's a few people with watermelons that are almost, if not ready to pick, I'm really worried that they're going to suffer a bit of damage. It will have a negative impact over the town for sure. The pastoralist inland, they're already suffering because it's been so long we haven't had any rain. This is just going to make it even worse for the poor buggers. It will have quite an impact upon our especially our primary producers in the in the town and out and around the town. Carnarvonshire President Eddie Smith with Jess Shackleton. 12 past 12. You're part of the Country Hour with Belinda Varasgetti on ABC Local Radio WA. Australia's cattle industry has received some very good news with Indonesia finally issuing import permits for live cattle. The news came through uh, late last week and by Saturday there was a ship getting loaded at Darwin Port which is now on its way to Jakarta. Troy Setter is the boss of the Consolidated Pastoral Company which runs stations across northern Australia and also some feedlots in Indonesia. He was pretty happy when the breakthrough came through late last week. 
On uh, Friday last week, uh, the uh, Ministry of Trade started to release permits for quite a few uh, soft commodities that had been uh, held up for the last uh, six or seven weeks, uh, and we saw live cattle permits uh, be released on Friday. And how much of a relief is that for industry? I think it's quite a big relief, not just for producers and, and exporters from Australia, but also in importers in Indonesia that were starting to face a fair bit of pressure from customers that they were supplying cattle to and, and looking at um, uh, having to put in uh, restrictions on sales. So everyone was quite relieved and particularly some of the live exporters have had ships with the anchor down paying to Murray in Darwin Harbour that uh, is very expensive. Well, I think... The Brahman Express, for example, I feel like it's been anchored off Darwin for three weeks or so now. Someone's paying for that, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. They're paying. The marriage can cost anywhere from twenty to fifty thousand dollars US a day. Costs about five to seven dollars per head per day to have them standing in the export yards um, waiting for export. And there's a whole lot of flow-ons um, of, uh, of people who just aren't without work. So I've, I was in Darwin last week and drove past RTA's depot, and there was a lot of trucks not moving. And you think well, there's a lot of drivers not getting income. And and uh, so in both Indonesia and Australia, there was a, a lot of people that were out of work for uh, for six or seven weeks that weren't expecting it. And so the permits have arrived and exports are underway. I see the Nine Eagles already left Darwin. It's on its way to Jakarta. How busy are you expecting this period sort of between now and Ramadan? Well, I think it'll be pretty busy. There's a, a strong demand from importers in Indonesia to get heavy cattle that they can slaughter reasonably quickly. Uh, the cattle have had uh, six or seven weeks without high concentrate feeds in Indonesia and they've been on northern Australian grass. It doesn't have as good a weight gain. So slaughter cattle are in strong demand. Um, there's a few issues to, to work through with cut roads and the usual wet season challenges that we have, but if there's demand there. Exporters and producers have always been able to find livestock in northern Australia to supply Indonesia. Okay, so still demand for that typical feeder steer job. But if you've got heavier cattle, there's good demand for that as well. Yeah, absolutely. There's normal demand for feeder cattle and, and stronger demand for slaughter cattle at the moment. And we're expecting to see a couple of ships uh, slip to, uh, to Townsville to, uh, to pick up heavier cattle uh, over the coming weeks. Uh, when we say Indonesia has released its import permits, is there a number attached to that on how many cattle, how many permits there are? There was uh, circa 650,000 head of uh, cattle permits uh, applied for and uh, and all of those have been uh, given approval. Is that more permits than cattle that could be supplied this year? Possibly. We're six weeks behind um, and we're facing a pretty good season in much of Australia, which is different to the forecast that we all had uh, at the end of last year, so it, it might make uh, supply a little bit uh, a little bit harder. Um, but uh, yeah, the, we're also seeing some improved economic conditions in Indonesia since uh, since COVID, and then the kill off of uh, some of the herd due to exotic disease. So there's a, a requirement for more live cattle there. So hopefully, we Australia can meet the the demand this year. And as you've mentioned before, Troy Setter, it wasn't just the live cattle trade waiting for permits. There were many other commodities waiting as well, including Australian box beef. What have you heard? As of Saturday morning, box beef permits still hadn't been released, according to Indonesian media. 
there was uh, some some delays in exactly how many tonnes were going to be issued. There was about 450,000 tonnes applied for versus last year's 155,000 tonne realisation. Um, this year, there's been a hun- they're expecting 145,000 tonnes of permits to be issued, um, and then uh, box beef importers would need to go back to the Ministry of Trade and ask for more permits if um, if they were successful in fulfilling that 145,000 tonnes. We've certainly heard of shortages in Indonesia for, with Australian and, and US box beef in particular, and for high quality grain-fed and Wagyu beef uh, into restaurants, there's been some real shortages and, and restaurants not being able to get uh, that high-quality beef on the table. So how are you feeling about the year ahead now, Troy Setter? Look, pretty confident, Matt. Um, I think yeah, we've got some good seasons so far in uh, in Australia in most areas. Unfortunately, there's a few dry patches in western Queensland and in the Kimberley, but hopefully they fill in over the next uh, six to eight weeks. Um, and we're seeing um, you know, some good demand out of Indonesia, Vietnam's strengthening back again, and then for box beef markets, um, whether it's the Middle East or uh, or North America, we're certainly seeing some good uh, good demand starting to, to grow uh, in those markets and some real supply challenges coming out of the US as their herd is at record low and their production is expected to be at record low this year. Troy Setter, he's the CEO of Consolidated Pastoral Company. Speaking to Matt Brown about the good news that came through on Friday, Indonesia finally issuing import permits for live cattle. Alice Marshall, our Kimberley-based rural reporter, just called through to say no ships have been booked out of the Broome port at this stage anyway. 18 past 12. Exports of table grapes to Indonesia have also resumed. Jeff Scott is the CEO of the Australian Table Grape Association. He says there was a slight delay in issuing the import permits earlier this year as Indonesia prepared for its national election on February 14th. Prior to the Indonesian election, the Minister of Trade opened up the import permits and quotas and some importers were able to get, not their full quota, but a number of import permits and quotas, which enabled trade to commence, which was thankful for us because Indonesia is an extremely important market to us. It's our second biggest export market. It uh, takes up probably close to $100 million worth of product, and it caused a lot of anxiety and angst amongst our growers because they needed to send fruit, and they weren't able to do so until just recently. What's happening now? What's the response from from growers and exporters? The good thing is that we're now exporting to Indonesia and we've probably got maybe 200 containers on the water right now yet to arrive in Indonesia, but at least the imports have started over there, which is a big plus. The election is now over, so hopefully the Indonesian government uh, gets back to their business of governing and they'll issue the RIPHs, which is the import licence, and the additional quotas that uh, need to be issued and things get back to normal. Australian Table Grape Association CEO Jeff Scott speaking to Elsie Kennedy. 20 past 12. Australia's potato industry is now worth more than $1 billion. The latest data shows the industry continues to produce around 1.4 million tonnes a year, but its production value has increased by a whopping 24%, 
pushing it above the $1 billion mark for the first time. Acting Chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump, says there's been a lot of investment in the potato sector and it's now paying off. Look, it's really exciting. Our, our industry has grown considerably in the last few years and it's largely driven through the investment the industry has been making over the last few years in automation and in innovation. Um, we've seen many of the processing companies, McCain's, Pepsi, uh, Stack Brands, Land Western, Simplot, they've all made major investments to their, uh, their infrastructure. We're seeing the same thing in the fresh sector, the Pie Group and the Matolo Group have, have both in, uh, made major investments. And that's that's extended right throughout the industry. Is this increase in value flowing back into the pockets of farmers? It's always a challenge. I mean, we're always looking for greater efficiencies to make sure that the farmers are getting greater rate of return, and it's 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 a constant challenge. And that's one of the the key drivers of Potatoes Australia is to make sure that the entire supply chain is challenged to look where there are greater efficiencies. So, is that a, a yes or a no in terms of if it's a good time to be a potato farmer or not? Look, it is a great time to be a potato farmer. Uh, it, it is it is the number one cash crop. So potato farmers are always looking for more, but it's also driven by uh, looking for greater efficiencies in how you do do business. And that's what's a lot of the investment that's happening is because growers need to be more efficient in how they can grow potatoes. So the industry has now cracked a billion dollars in value for the first time going forward. Um, what's your thoughts? Uh, look, I, I think it's just exciting time to be in the industry. One of the big challenges I think we've got is food waste. There's going to be a big challenge throughout the industry. So trying to actually see where we can fit that in the supply chain and getting better return from the growers R&D levy. I think that's going to be a big challenge moving forward as well. We haven't seen a lot of investment from innovation in the potato industry in over 10 years. And so the growers would actually like to see their uh, their levy spend put back into the industry. Potatoes Australia, we're actually hosting the World Potato Congress here in June in Adelaide. It uh, should be a fantastic event with uh, people from all around the world, over a 1,000 delegates. So it's a really exciting time to be in the Australian potato industry. Acting Chair for Potatoes Australia, Nigel Crump, speaking to Matt Brand. 23 past 12, and are you in the potato industry and do you agree with Nigel Crump? Are you excited about what the future holds? Are you seeing the benefits of that overall production value now being over $1 billion? Text me, let me know. What is the situation at your place? 0448-922-604. Daryl Smith grows potatoes near Busselton, which is about 220 kilometres south of Perth. He's not so optimistic about the future because he says regardless of production values, he's not seeing healthy profit margins. I wouldn't have thought we were worth a billion dollars at all, no. No, and if we are, there's there's a lot of profit going somewhere else. I mean, the the industry might be growing for sure, but and and the value of the industry might be growing, but I, I don't believe it's keeping up with the cost of productions that has increased in in the last short period. When you say cost of production, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's no secret that fertiliser and fuel, wages, electricity, everything's, I mean, the cost of living is, is growing astronomically and, and the cost of growing potatoes has increased just as much, if not more. The prices that we're receiving have increased a small amount. I don't know, I think there's something like a 24% increase, not only to be mentioned in, in the value of Australia's uh, production, but but just my costs have, have increased by 40% to, to plant a potato crop. So... 
there's not enough rise, basically, and that's assuming that the, the total tonnage hasn't increased as part of that 24% as well. Does that give you confidence to keep going? Like, if your value has gone up 42%, how are you feeling as a potato grower? Well, we made a conscious decision as a business this year to, to decrease. We took one paddock out of production. We just said, well, this, we're not making any money out of growing these potatoes for the fresh market and the processing market. So we'll just decrease it for a while and, and see if, if things change. We might might alter our opinion. But at the moment, it seems to be a uh, just a, the more we grow, the more we lose. When you hear of values, though, of an industry that's worth more than $1 billion, does that make you rethink it and go, oh, hang on a second, maybe I should hang in there? Well, I mean, that sort of information maybe is the reason that we didn't totally stop growing potatoes rather than just decrease. We think eventually, I mean, I know two growers in the area that I grow in Boston have dropped out this this particular crop. And uh, you think, well, Surely, eventually, the um, supply-demand situation has to change. If, if Obviously, if there's this big crop of potatoes and value of production of over a billion dollars, somebody's got to grow those potatoes. What do you want to see going forward then, Daryl? Someone that we spoke to earlier, Nigel Crump, who was the acting chair of Potatoes Australia, uh, he said that, that they've actually put a lot of investment, which he believes is paying off. Do, do you agree? Oh, look, there's there's a, a levy that all our potato growers pay to, to help with the research and development. And, and a, look, a lot of that research and development, it, it has to help us, but it's just whether it's enough to, to make a business viable in growing potatoes or, or a lot of other vegetable crops as well. Bustleton potato grower Daryl Smith speaking to Kate Forrester. 26 past 12, Michael Smith is a bit more optimistic. His farm is a bit further south near Manjimup and he grows potatoes for the chip market, which the current demand is very high. Since the uh, chip shortage um, last year, it's been very interesting. It's, we haven't seen a year like it, really. The demand has been unbelievable and uh, it really hasn't stopped since uh, even this year. The demand has been very high for a, for a product. Because production value has increased by 24%. Are you seeing that in Manjimup? Are you planning more to keep up with demand? Yeah, we're definitely planting more. I think um, up from two, two years ago, we've uh, increased by about 35% in our uh, total, total cropping area. So it's definitely more spuds in the area. Who are you supplying to? Uh, we supply 100% of our potatoes to a processing centre in Manjimup, WA Chip. They take our raw product and turn it into French fries. Definitely uh, t- taking on uh, more more potatoes or more you know, more grown from the growers, um, and uh, they're actually looking at upgrading their factory as well to uh, to try and make that demand. L- last few years, until this chip shortage, um, we've just been cruising along, you know, not going ahead in great leaps and bounds. But uh, with, with the shortage, it's definitely helped for both growers and and the factory um, with the demand being so high. Majumup potato grower Michael Smith speaking to Kate Forrester. If you want to read more about the billion-dollar spud industry, just search ABC Landline and Potato and you'll find all the details. This on the text regarding the potato story, the fact it's worth a billion dollars these days in, in value. Uh, no, 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 no. WA potato growers are not seeing the profits our cost of production is higher than the increase in the price to the growers. A potato grower, that is hurting. Thank you for that text. I appreciate that. Zero double four eight nine double two six zero four. So really along the same lines as the Bustleton potato grower, Daryl Smith, you heard from earlier, 
Uh, same sort of tune with those high import costs uh, really uh, having a huge impact and even with a little bit of an increase in prices, returns to growers not making much of a difference. The text 0448 922604. 28 past 12, Jonathan Beale in the studio with the headlines. Thanks, Belinda. The Attorney-General has announced he'll be leaving state politics at the next election. John Quigley was elected to the seat of Inaloo for Labor in 2001 and has remained in the Legislative Assembly ever since. He says he's told the Premier he would not seek re-election next year. Mr Quigley says he's leaving on his own terms and has not been pushed. A former Deputy Secretary of the Immigration Department says both major political parties have similar policies on asylum seekers arriving by boat. Debate has reignited over refugees after 39 people arrived by boat in the Kimberley last Friday. The opposition leader, Peter Dutton, says their arrival shows people smugglers have been emboldened by the Labor government's weakness on border security. Abdul Rivzi says both parties have a strong stance on the issue. And authorities in Papua New Guinea are urging residents in the high region to stay calm after more than 60 people were shot dead in a massacre. Police say they were killed when one tribe on its way to attack another was ambushed. The incident marks a major escalation in tribal fighting and police say it could be the largest massacre in the region in recent history. More news, Belinda, at one o'clock. Jonathan, thank you for that update. Half past 12. You're with Belinda Varischetti on the Country Hour on ABC Local Radio WA. Well, the Bureau of Meteorology has just issued a flood warning for parts of the Kimberley, specifically for those in Warman, Halls Creek and Fitzroy Crossing. So in just a moment, you'll get the latest forecast on ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln and the rain that it might bring. Also between now and the news at one, it's off to Muche for the results of the cattle market. And also, you would be aware that Federal Cabinet is meeting in Perth today And as part of that and a range of meetings that are underway, the Federal Agriculture Minister Murray Watt invited the two presidents of the two key farm lobby groups here in WA, the PGA and the WA Farmers, to come along for a half-hour meeting this afternoon. Both have said no. So we'll find out why shortly. And also take a look at the biosecurity risks associated with boats of foreign nationals arriving on WA's uh, remote north, uh, as it did on late Friday afternoon. We'll take a look at that shortly. First, off to the Bureau of Meteorology. Caroline Crow is with you this afternoon. Caroline, let's start in the north and take a look at that situation I was just referring to where you've just issued that flood warning for parts of the Kimberley. What's in store this afternoon and for the rest of the week? Yeah, uh, that's right, Belle. So uh, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln, it's still sitting in uh, very close to the WANT border. It's going it's taking a westward track at the moment. Uh, it's going to move into the East Kimberley uh, during the days it progresses uh, and potentially uh, close to the system. We're f- looking at um, increased rainfall, uh, possible flooding uh, and uh, thunderstorms as well. So as you mentioned, there is a flood watch out uh, and now that is current for the east, west, north, 
North Kimberley, the Fitzroy River and the Sturt Creek uh, district as well. So it covers a broader range uh, than just that East Kimberley at the moment because over the next couple of days we're going to see the system, once it's moved into WA uh, and that East Kimberley area, start uh, beginning to slowly move more in a northwestwards direction. So that's where it includes then the northern districts and also sort of part of those northwestern parts of the Kimberley um, as uh, the system progresses and that rainfall associated with it is going to potentially continue uh, with the path. Uh, Now from a perspective of rainfall totals, we could see that heavy rainfall um, looking as though it will start increasing from later today uh, and we could see six hourly rainfall totals uh, around the 60 to 100 millimetre mark and uh, 24 total hour totals uh, up to about 150 millimetre mark um, and then there are some isolated, a uh, chance of getting some isolated 24 hour falls reaching up to about 200 millimetres possible. So they're the kind of figures that we're looking at uh, over the next couple of days as the system progresses. Uh, beyond that uh, the system um, ex-tropical cyclone Lincoln uh, looks as though it's going to pop off uh, the west coast, uh, the west Kimberley coast and back over to open waters uh, and there is a chance, Bell, that we could see it developing, uh, redeveloping into a tropical cyclone uh, coming into uh, more likely Thursday, Friday uh, this week. And those rainfall figures, how widespread are they across the Kimberley? Is it just the Kimberley or further than that, Caroline? At this point, just with it being the extropical cyclone, with it being uh, over the Kimberley, so it's more that eastern uh, part of the Kimberley and getting into uh, those northern and uh, northwestern parts. So, uh, from an eastward perspective, eastern perspective, Horse Creek is on the boundary. Um, and then if you kind of draw a, a line from Halls Creek uh, up to sort of that Derby area, that's kind of the area that we're looking at at this point in time and then potentially uh, extending a little bit across uh, the sort of Dampier Peninsula there, um, that region with the, the heavy falls. Um, talking a couple of days ahead, so uh, how quickly it moves and how quickly offshore sort of thing will be a little bit dependent on the amount of rainfall as well. And I should just mention too that there is that flood warning that we've just been talking about for parts of the Kimberley, but there is also a section of the Gibb River Road has been closed due to that flooding and that's between Great Northern Highway and Mount Barnett. It's closed to all vehicles. Now, Caroline, uh, temperatures across northern and eastern parts, what have we got today? Uh, well, Bell, it has been pretty hot uh, and a few records were broken yesterday, annual records. Um, so just to retrack a little bit on what yesterday, Carnarvon re- reached 49.9 degrees, which was an annual record uh, for Carnarvon. Um, the previous record was 47.8 um, and also uh, Shark Bay and uh, Geraldton also had annual records uh, yesterday as well, getting up into those high. Well, Shark Bay was 49.8 it was. So very hot temperatures. The West Coast today, is a touch cooler, so uh, into the sort of lower 30s for Carnarvon. Shark Bay has remained a little bit warmer, but not as warm as yesterday. Uh, Similarly, uh, sort of along the west coast towards Geraldton, more around that 46 degree mark. But it is very hot again, uh, continuing to be very hot for the next couple of days, particularly in the northern parts, getting into the mid to high 40s, uh, still continuing through uh, the Pilbara into the Gascoigne, uh, into northern parts of the central, or, or into northern parts of the southwest. Westland Division, um, Central Wheat Belt, uh, getting down towards Perth today as well, and even sort of into the 40s, low 40s in the Great Southern. Um, the northern parts of the goldfields is also around 40 as well. Coming into tomorrow, uh, 
that heat extends further south, so a little bit uh, warmer uh, through the Great Southern and getting right down sort of more towards the, the southern coastal district. So 45 for Ravensthorpe, 43 for Mount Barker and getting into the 40s sort of in the inland part of the southwest and, and sort of low to mid-30s along the uh, south coast. Esperance is looking at 41 tomorrow, so still quite warm. Then we're going to start seeing a bit of a change on Wednesday. A weak cold front's uh, approaching, going to scrape the southwest corner, so bring some light falls just to that southwest corner area, but we will see a milder change starting to extend through. So on Wednesday, the west coast of the southwest land division through into sort of southwestern parts and along the south coast, temperatures will be lower, but we'll still continue to see some of those warmer temperatures inland. And then as we progress into on um, Thursday, we start seeing that uh, milder change extending over the southern half of the state, Val. Caroline, thank you for going through those details, 23 to 1. Let's check the rainfall figures over the weekend with Richard Hudson. Yeah, and it's only really in the Kimberley again, which is as you'd expect with that system. Diggers Rest, 31. Drysdale River Station, 17. Ellenbray, 9. Emma Gorge, 48. Gibb River, 9. Columbaroo, 4. Kununurra had 23 and the Kununurra's checkpoint 25. Lake Argyle Resort 8, Mount Barnett 5, Nicholson 6, Siddons Creek 7, Theda 11, Truscott 8, Warman 15, Winjana Gorge 9 and Wyndham recorded 16. Sounds like there's a bit more on the way though. Um, due to the hot weather and the extreme fire danger today, heaps of shires have imposed a total fire ban. So in the Perth metro area and surrounds, that's for uh, Armadale, Chittering, Coburn, Gingin, Gosnells, Kalamunda, Quinana, Mandurah, Mundaring, Rockingham, Serpentine, Jarradale, Swan and Wanneroo. In the Midwest, it's for Carnamar, Chapman Valley, Karoo, Dandarigan, Greater Geraldton, Irwin, Minganew, Mora, Morrowa, Northampton, Perenjury, Three Springs, Victoria Plains, uh, also Beverly, Cunderdon, Dalwallanew, Darren, Gamaling, Corder, Mount Marshall, Muckenbuden, Northam, Querriting, Tamman, 2J, Wonganballaju, Westonia, Walcatcham, Yilgarn, York. Then in the southwest, Collie, Dardanup, Harvey, Murray, Waruna, and also Augusta Margaret River, Boyup Brook, Bridgetown, Greenbushes. Busselton, Donnybrook, Bailing Up, Manjum Up and Nan Up. So during a total fire ban, you can't do anything at all that can start a fire. Obviously, things like cooking and hot work, uh, welding, grinding, etc. And no use of four-wheel drives, quad bikes or motorbikes uh, off-road. And if you want more information on what you can and can't do or which shires have a total fire ban in place, just search Emergency and WA and you'll find the Emergency WA website. And just remember, it's your responsibility to check with your local shire if they have actually issued a harvest and vehicle movement ban, because that also includes the use of off-road vehicles for industry and agricultural reasons. So the shires that do have a harvest ban in place today is the city of Busselton, Chittering, city of Greater Geraldton, Meriden, Minganew, Pingley, city of Rockingham, Wonganballaju, Yalgoo and Yulgarn.
That's it. Thanks for that, Richard. 21 to 1. The president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association and WA Farmers have refused a face-to-face meeting with the Federal Agriculture Minister in Perth today. Murray Watt is in WA for a Federal Cabinet meeting and had invited the two farm lobby group leaders for a half-hour meeting, which was scheduled to start at quarter past one. Tony Seabrook, why aren't you going? He is the Minister for Agriculture. He should be coming over here every six months to sit down with people like John Haslam and myself to discuss issues around agriculture. To throw in 30 minutes and the excuse for being over here was a Cabinet meeting. Could he be bothered to come over here as a Minister for Agriculture? 30 minutes. And the people in that room, and there are more than just just the two farm organisations, live exporters as well, um, it's rude. It's absolutely rude. You know, th- I'll sit down with the minister and have a meaningful discussion with him any time. But 30 minutes with probably six, seven, eight, ten people in the room, no, I'm sorry, you're not taking it seriously. Now, you're always arguing for you know, a meeting, a face-to-face meeting with the, the minister. I mean, don't you, by refusing this invitation, run the risk of him in the future saying, well, look, we offered a chance to have a meeting and we were snubbed? Um. I wouldn't call this a proper meeting. I know that the two live exporters are asked to be in the room and said to me this morning they're not going to attend either. I would love to sit down with the Minister and have a meaningful discussion about a whole range of issues. We can't even scratch the surface in 30 minutes. If each person got one or two minutes to speak, that would be the end of it. So I'm more than happy to meet with the Minister when we have a meaningful discussion. But 30 minutes in a day, if that's all the time he's got for us, we'll never get anywhere. And he'll talk for half the time anyway. So, you know, when he wants to have a serious discussion, love to have that. But this is rude. Was, was it specifically about the future of the live sheep trade, this particular meeting this afternoon? We don't know. We don't know. And what I would say is that the, the Minister commissioned uh, a panel to come over here and survey the industry to work out how to shut the trade down. I think it was over $5 million got spent on that. And heaven knows how much the industry itself, by participating, invested itself in this. All the meetings, all the submissions, all the gatherings, um, we would have spent at least a similar amount of money. So this this report was presented to him before Christmas. I think it's four months that he's had it now. If this report actually fell into line with Labor Party policy, I believe it would have been on the front page of every paper, rural paper in Australia the next day after he received it. The fact he's buried it under what he calls cabinet confidentiality it tells me that it isn't really quite the report that he was hoping for. And uh, I'd say to the Minister, first of all, why didn't you show us what the report said? Why won't you make it a public document? And you have no understanding or recognition of the harm that you're doing to West Australian farmers and your failure to engage with us in a meaningful way. Uh, you know, I just don't see the man as being the Minister for Agriculture. Aren't you running the risk of missing out on some really big news this afternoon? You don't even know what specifically the meeting is about. You know, we'll have representatives in the room in case, just in case there is a major announcement. So we haven't totally said no, but John and I have both decided that as heads of organisations, if he respects us as representative bodies, then he should have done or given us a far more meaningful amount of time to have the discussion. Tony, good to talk to you. Thank you. Tony Seabrook is president of the Pastoralists and Graziers Association, 17 to 1.
Kimberley pastoralist David Stote says the arrival of a group of foreign nationals in WA's remote north raises some serious biosecurity concerns for the state's agricultural sector. On Friday, 39 men who claimed to have arrived from Indonesia by boat were found near the remote Aboriginal community Beagle Bay, more than 100 kilometres north of Broome. David Stoat runs Anna Plains Cattle Station, 250 kilometres south of Broome. David, what sort of risk does an arrival like this really pose for agriculture? I mean, it is a significant biosecurity risk when you have people uh, just wandering in uh, across the coast. I mean, you compare that to a normal, you know, airport situation or port situation where people are coming in. There's, there's as we know, there's a much more rigorous uh, screening that goes on. So if, if people are um, just wandering in, uh, that that's the significant biosecurity concern and you know especially when they're coming from countries like Indonesia which which does have foot and mouth disease so look it's something uh, we all need to be mindful of. So is foot and mouth disease the main concern with an arrival like this? Uh, Well it's certainly a big concern given you know Indonesia's had that outbreak in the last couple of years so and we know that it's a virus that can survive for a long time on shoes or you know, food material or whatever. So, but it's it's not the only biosecurity concern. There's plenty of other pests and diseases that uh, we all need to be, you know, worried about and vigilant about. And that's why we have the checks and balances at, you know, when people and you know re-enter the country. And to what extent were, you know, the possible biosecurity concerns sort of front and centre after this? discovery of this group of foreign nationals on Friday afternoon? Well, I suspect that probably they probably weren't, you know, front of mind. They were, probably the bigger concern was how people just turn up um, without anyone knowing about it. So that that's probably what the government are worried about. So, But, you know, they do need to be worried about this biosecurity risk. Uh, I mean, we all need to be worried about it. So, you know, hopefully, you know, they have taken I'm not sure how they got there if, whether there was food material on the boat or however they came in so when I mean, that needs to be worked out and you know making sure any risk is mitigated what do you make of a, a boat like this just arriving undetected unannounced on the WA coast well it does seem very puzzling how they can just uh, wander in without anyone knowing about it I mean I have heard fishermen say that they see illegal fishing vessels regularly, so um, you would think that surveillance of the coastline needs to be improved. So, I mean, hopefully this is a wake-up call for the government. And, I mean, how do you find the balance here, David? Because obviously in this group, and some of them have spoken to the ABC, and one man in particular uh, saying that he used to live in Australia, he's from Pakistan, he went back there and he was tortured there. Uh, captured, you know, his property was captured and, you know, it sounds like a terrible situation. So trying to balance that of people escaping a situation like that, but also keeping in mind those really important biosecurity issues for the agricultural sector. Yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, we want people to enter the country in the, in the, in the conventional manner, which is through a, you know, where there's, you know, customs checks on, on people coming in. I mean, that, that's how we want people to to come into the country. So, uh, I mean, I'm not 
quite sure how uh, asylum seekers would do that. But um, earlier they were intercepted, uh, you know, the less the biosecurity risk would be. So, I mean, it's just a matter of having proper surveillance of the coastline, I think, and then um, these people can be intercepted earlier and, and the, the biosecurity risk um, reduced. David, thank you for just um, putting out your concerns about this ar- arrival on WA's coast last week. And while you're here on the Country Hour today, I just wanted to get an update on the, the seasonal conditions for you because I think it was about a month ago we spoke to you. There hadn't been any rain. It's been really dry just on that West Kimberley and that sort of situation continues today. But there is a system that could possibly deliver you some rain. Are you hopeful of getting any out of that system? <laughs> Uh, yeah, always hopeful, Belinda. Uh, it's, uh, the, I've got to say, I just had a look at the forecast. It's not looking terribly good for us here in the West Kimberley. So it's, um, I guess there's, there's still a bit of uncertainty about it. So hopefully uh, we still uh, with some rain out of it. But um, it's not looking good and things really haven't improved since the last last uh, spoke to you. So, um, yeah, ho- hopefully they do improve in the, fu- in the near future. And how are you managing the situation? Uh, last time we spoke, you had sent off a, a, some cattle on a truck over to a property in the Northern Territory. Are you looking at that again or moving the cattle around? What are you doing? Yeah, but, but I haven't uh, moved any off the property, but we sort of are moving cattle around the property and, yeah, it'll just be probably start mustering early and, and look, get, get rid of as many cattle as we can to different markets or adjustment or, you know, do, do everything we can to re- reduce the load. David, I really hope that rain comes your way. Thank you. Thanks, Belinda. David Stoke from Anaplane Station, south of Broome, 11 to 1. Well, this year, the WA branch of the Country Women's Association celebrates 100 years. But with farms getting bigger, some local CWA branches have been in danger of folding due to low membership. And that was certainly the case for one branch a few hundred kilometres south of Perth until one young determined member decided to do something about it. I think the CWA is an important part of our community and always has been so iconic and it would be really sad to see it go. Three years ago, the Country Women's Association in the West Australian Wheatbelt town of Darkin was on the cusp of closing. That was until Bonnie Teffler came along. There were four members. They couldn't continue due to health reasons. So they put out in our local paper they needed more members otherwise the CWA in Darkham was going to close so um, I saw that in the paper and mum and I messaged everyone that we knew in town that thought would be able to help and everybody came down to the CWA building and yeah then we took it over from there. The 23-year-old may not seem like your typical CWA deputy president, but her modern approach has attracted more than one-third of the townswomen to the historic association. We're not as traditional as other branches, so we've done lots of amazing things. Workshops, we do do a cake stall for Anzac Day, usually, which 
attracts lots of people. We have our big International Women's Day event, which we held for the first time last year and was a huge success. So we've got that coming up again on the 6th of March. This year with, with guest speakers, everyone gets to dress up, beautiful food and venue. It's also just a chance for um, women to get together and just be themselves. Like They don't have to be the mother or the teacher, whoever they are in the community, we can just come together and get to know other people. Like I've become close with people that I wouldn't normally be close with if it wasn't for the CWA, so I think it's been really good. One of those women is Darkens primary school principal and new branch president Eloisa Goss. For us it's all about fun and friendship and bringing women together, particularly rural women, and giving them an opportunity to come together in our meetings where we'll have dinner and maybe some drinks have lots of conversations and support everybody. We're trying to attract younger members and particularly um, young mums so that they can learn from maybe some of the older women in our community um, and they can rely on those women for support uh, because particularly women in regional areas, a lot of them have married into the farming community so they're not going to have their support network, their own personal family close to them. So we've got a couple of members who have got um, little babies Um, And for them, their parents are either interstate or in the metro area. And so they've been able to connect with some older women who've already had children and then provide them with some support. For a branch that was teetering on the edge of irrelevance, Darkens Resurgence comes at an auspicious time for the association in WA, which this year celebrates its centenary. And with 100 years under its belt, state CEO Trish Langdon says the change in Darkens showed the old institution could still learn some new tricks. Come on girls, come up to the table, let's keep things rolling please. It's incredibly exciting and we're absolutely thrilled about how that happened and I think it was like a model that we can employ in other places and I think what it is, is it's about communicating to younger people that we are still relevant for them and what we know, we've got data that shows us that some women um, join when they retire because they're sort of used to being really busy and they want to continue to contribute to the community. Then you've got younger ones, say in their 20s, who want to become involved in the community and they use the CWA as this kind of way of getting into the community. And then we've got women who are isolated at home with children, looking after kids, and they want to meet other mums in that sort of circumstance. So there's many different ways, but what brings them together is a sense of, well, I call it purposeful friendship. It's not just a matter of getting together and um, having, you know, scones and tea. It's actually about how can we make the world a better place? How can we make our community really be responsive? How can we um, have a thriving community? And Darkin is just that. So the ladies and the women that join Darkin are great believers in their own community and that the CWA's got an integral part of that community. And that is the values from the very beginning. So they've emulated the beginning of the CWA. Western Australia's CWA Chief Executive Trish Langdon with Andrew Chounding. And just search ABC Darken and CWA and you'll see Andrew's online story. You'll see a photo of 23-year-old Bonnie Telfer, who you just heard from, and she was awarded the 2024 Young Community Citizen of the Year for saving her local CWA, which has around about 30 members. Six minutes to one. Have you heard the rumour that in the 1930s, a renowned WA station once changed hands in a game of poker? 
I'm talking about Quabba Station, which is almost a thousand kilometres north of Perth. According to the tale, five pastoralists sat down for that game of poker with the 100,000 hectare property up for grabs. Xander Sapsworth Collis did some digging to find out if the story is true. Gascoigne farming folklore talks of a legendary card game over a sheep station. But Neil Baston heard the tale much later. I had heard, had heard the rumour, don't know quite know when, that the, you know, the station was one on a one at the poker game. But it wasn't until probably the 70s that we actually got actual uh, a photo of the um, hand of cards. As the story goes, Neil's grandfather, George Baston, won Quabba Station in WA's Gascoigne region in a poker game in 1933 after the owner, Charles Fane, had wagered his pastoral lands after going bust. That's what Martin Baston, Neil's brother, was also told. In that particular time of the year, they may have been all playing cards in what became to be known as the Carnarvon Club. There were most of the pastoralists, uh, and there was a lot more of them in those days, don't forget. And um, they were playing cards, and they quite often did this, remembering there was, was much else for entertainment, I guess, if you're sitting around waiting in November, it's probably a bit warm. The five pastoralists played their game at the local clubhouse. The historic hand, which had a 1 in 650,000 chance of being pulled, now sits at the Carnarvon One Mile Jetty Museum. And one of the cards features the signatures of all five players. As I understand it, they had a, um, a royal routine flush. And that happens to be the, the king of diamonds, the queen of diamonds, Jack of Diamonds, Ace of Diamonds, and the Ten of Diamonds. And it was extremely rare. But is the story true? Neil admits card playing was a big part of his family history. My father certainly wasn't a card player or gambler, but my grandfather, who's uh, in that, the one there, George Henry Sutton, he certainly was a card player. Uh, Great-grandfather was certainly a card player in... um, Geraldton said he could shuffle cards quicker than the shifting sands of Geraldton. But unfortunately, a few key details undermine the truthfulness of the tale. The game was happened in 1933 and that the um, uh, Bastard and French bought Quabra in 1921. So the, the years don't exactly line up. And then if you look at the names on the cards that are signed, I can't see any Charlie Fane. Baston, McLeod and Shellcross are the only identifiable signatures on the card. The other two are indecipherable. Both brothers think the game likely became famous because of the Royal Flush, and over the years the tale has evolved into something even more dramatic that's been retold over and over in paddocks and pubs across the Gascoigne. It is, yeah, it's a good story, but... Unfortunately, it doesn't doesn't quite ring true. Neil Baston ending that report by Xander Sapworth Collis. Nine hundred and fifty-four cattle were penned for sale at the Mushay market today. That is down three hundred and twenty on last week. Terry Birkin, can you run through the details? Hi Melinda. Not surprisingly numbers were down given the softer valleys in recent weeks and the heat wave. Cow supplies were well represented, both in finished weights and feeder weights, all losing five cents a kilo, while export bull numbers dropped well back uh, under 100 head. There were some nice lines of improved wiener cars with fat cover on offer against runs of secondary store cars, all gaining up to 10 cents a kilo. However, pastoral steer and heifer cars lacking cover and weight were selling at very conservative rates, even though the buy gallery was reasonably full. Wiener steers gained 10 cents, mainly due to better fat cover, selling from 240 to 268 cents, 
while in store condition from 180 to 220 cents a kilo. The same story with Wiener heifers with good fat cover returning 180 to 224 cents and lighter condition heifers from 158 to 206 cents a kilo. Yearly steers up to 330 kgs made 242 to 262 and over 330 kgs sold to a top of 258 cents a kilo. Yearly heifers up to 330 kg were selling from 150 to 184 cents and over 330 kg returned 174 to 198 cents a kilo. Grown steers and heifers remained firm with steers ranging from 120 to 240 cents. Lightweight cows were making 70 cents to 140 cents while medium and heavy cows eased 5 cents with medium cows selling from 100 to 166 cents and heavy cows realising 174 cents a kilo. Shipping bulls sold from 100 cents to 258 cents and mature bulls were down to 5 cents, selling from 80 cents to 174 cents a kilo. This is Terry Birkin for MLA's National Livestock Reporting Service. Terry, thank you so much for that. Appreciate it. On the ABC, right across WA, time for the news, 1 o'clock. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.